It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your Times Radio, on your DAB Radio smart speaker. You can download the app. Maybe the app is how you listen to the podcast as well, uh, or online at times.radio. Uh, right, we've got an extra little bit on the podcast today. You'll be able to hear it later on. I've been speaking to the man who's had Big Ben in his shed. Uh, in a massively secret operation. Uh, Keith Scobie Youngs has been working on the Big Ben clock mechanism uh, in a uh, barn in Cumbria. Uh, and nobody knew about it. It was all a top secret. Uh, but it's now all back in London, so he's now able to talk about it. So we thought we'd stick that on the end of the podcast as an extra little treat today. Uh, coming up, though, as normal, as it's Wednesday, we've got PMQs unpacked. Tim Shipman and I pause the action from the House of Commons to explain what is going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer as they both try to claim the moral high ground on MPs, second jobs and sleaze and all of that. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, is our economist panel. No Alice Thompson today. So it's Robert Crampton, joined by Deputy Property Editor of the Times. It's Carol Lewis. Let's start, first of all, maybe maybe between us we can try and get to the bottom of this. Pretty Patel is really cross about the broken asylum system in this country, uh, in part because of the people trying to cross the channel, but in particular because of uh, the Liverpool bomber was a failed asylum seeker. Has anyone got any idea who's been in power for the last 11 years mm. who might be able to shed some light on why the system's broke? Robert, have you got any ideas? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's really unf- I mean, uh, I think it's really unfair of her to uh, to kind of caricature asylum seekers uh, as a result of the actions of one mentally disturbed individual who uh, she said he was gaming the system, claiming you know converting to Christianity so he couldn't uh, go home, he couldn't be sent home because of uh, persecution. I think the asylum system is broken, but not in the way that Priti Patel thinks it is. I think it's broken because it t- they take, it takes too long. Uh, we, uh, half the appeals are rejected. Uh, people uh, sometimes d- d- don't get the appeals that they need. It's families being uh, divided. And the asylum system uh, that we was that we, uh, that we claim to be so proud of in this country which we all hear about is not really what it once was we're not the uh, refuge that uh, that we uh, claim to be and i think in that respect it is broken and it's a, it's a bureaucratic nightmare you can't you have to you you can't claim asylum in another country but you can't you can't come you can't arrive here let me get this right you can't travel here legally to claim asylum so therefore people get on boats uh and then they 
try to claim it when they get here. It seems to me uh, that it needs reform, but probably not in the not in the way that Pretty thinks it does. But even in, actually, this is so often the case with Pretty Patel. Even on her own terms, mm. you know, for two years now, she's been saying, "I'm going to do something about people coming across the yeah. channel on small boats." And yeah. it's got worse. It's got worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So it, even on her own terms, the, if if she thinks there is a particular problem with this guy in Liverpool, then and he was repeatedly uh, failed. Well. To Paul, to do something. It's not like you're just an innocent bystander no, in all of this. Quite, yeah. And and some of the schemes that she come up with, that she's come up with over the uh, in the summer, she came up with putting uh, people on oil rigs, oil rigs, yeah. disused ferries, yeah, and Ascension Islands, yeah, TikTok. That's right. It, 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 it doesn't inspire that much confidence, in, given that she is running the system. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Carol? I don't know why she doesn't make better use of the international resettlement scheme. Um, which is a more organised scheme that you do from the country of origin, so that would dissuade the people smugglers and have fewer people just turning up on, and, and trying their luck, and they'd, they'd be supported. Because I think one of the main things is there's lots of individual direct applicants, and they're not being supported. They're sort of like like this poor guy, who I think actually this, this case is more a breakdown in the mental health system as mm. much as the asylum system. I think there should be a better system for them. And as, as Bob says, we've got a huge backlog. There's something like 70,000 people in the backlog. I mean, that needs to be cleared swiftly and they need to have proper, fair representation. And we do need to, if they fail and fail more than a, twice, then be deported. Be, you know, we have to be sort of firm and fair. And it suits pretty Patel politically to... to, to, to... To, to make out like we're being swamped with asylum seekers, yeah. I think if you look at other, if you look at us compared to other European Union countries, not that we're in the European Union anymore. What? We, Nobody's we, told uh, me about this. We rank <laughs> we, in terms of applications per capita. We rank 14. Yeah, yeah. So with the middle middle ranking in terms, of, it's, it's not as if the word is there on the on the street in Damascus. You must get yourself to Calais and get in a boat and get in, and everything will be fine and you'll be able to stay claim benefits and all the rest of it, which is kind of what she's implying by saying this under the result, the actions of one uh, disturbed individual. There's all, I'm, I'm interested in sort of the politics as well, Carol. It's just the ongoing ability of Boris Johnson in particular and this government in general to pretend that they haven't been in government yeah. for 11 years. Yes, yeah. I mean, um, uh, Daniel Finkelstein wrote a very good piece today about how Boris shouldn't uh, apologise because political apologies don't work. I think basically no one would believe Boris if he did apologise yeah. just because he's Boris. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, look at the sleaze thing. I mean, he's just the man. Is, he's just he's pinging back and forth. He's seen one thing to fortnight ago, and now he's just gone to the other extreme. But it's amazing that, the, yeah. that somehow the Labour Party haven't managed to point out the Conservatives have been in government for 11 years. And actually, unlike Boris Johnson, who's been in and out a bit, Pretty mm. Patel has been in the government, uh, for, apart, yeah. from, apart from when she had to resign for a slightly peculiar holiday to Israel. Oh, when she was making up foreign policy. Yeah. Yes, when she was... We've all done it. You yes, yeah, of course, you have a few drinks. <laughs> you have a few drinks, and before you know it, you're sitting down with Benjamin Netanyahu yeah. uh, um, <laughs> over some prawns. Um, uh, but uh, you know, she's been in the government the whole time. She's been, you know, junior minister, cabinet minister, uh, and so. Uh, but for her to, and also, I suppose, actually, she's the Home Secretary. You know, the security services only have to be, you know, have to be lucky every time, and a yeah. terrorist only has to be lucky once. But yeah. you know, somewhere along the line, there has possibly been a failure of policing, security, whatever. And actually, her say, well, it's the asylum system's fault rather yeah. than a failure of, you know, the state to protect us. 
Also, yeah, and also, I was going to say a rude word then, but stuff happens, yeah? yeah. Stuff happens. And uh, it's a, the world, it, it's a globalised world, and people, we, you know, people who weren't necessarily coming to this country with, with, before with certain belief systems now do, uh, and bad things happen. Uh, I think... I think the security service has actually done an amazing job in terms of the, 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 the lack the lack of uh, incidents that we've had since yeah. uh, seven seven. Uh, but no, I wouldn't. It, sometimes there is not, you can't necessarily point a finger uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. say this is this. But also, I suppose there's an interesting question on the, on the sort of the politics of how, if Peter Patel keeps saying the asylum system yeah. broken, yeah, can she still be saying that into the next election or? Or, I wouldn't know, have thought so. And she, didn't they come up with they come up with some proposals to reform it? Haven't they earlier this month? I think so. Presumably, she's saying we've got. To, yeah, but then uh, at yeah. some point she has to start saying the side of sisters brilliant. Yes, before yes, the next before, before the does. next election. Yeah. Well, let's move because you you slightly touched on sleaze. Um, uh, uh, I think both of you did actually. Um, but yeah. with um, uh, what do, what do you you see? Do you agree with Danny then, uh, Carol? That, that Boris Johnson apologising would be. A mistake. I, I dug it up a couple of it was a couple of days ago. There was this great last year when he's been asked to apologise for his handling of the pandemic, and why wouldn't he apologise? He said, "I'm sorry if I don't apologise uh, often <laughs> enough." Uh, which is God, that sounds so much like Boris, doesn't it? And even that I, wasn't I, an apology because it was if he didn't say, "I'm sorry for not saying so." I'm sorry if I don't say sorry without ever really accepting that he didn't. Um, but it's just quite interesting. Your sort of take on it is to is to uh, the, the politics of apologies and U-turns and that sort of thing. Yes, I mean, Danny's argument was that political apologies don't work because they draw attention more to the problem. Um, I think what I would add in there is it, it doesn't matter even if they did work, we wouldn't believe Boris and his crew now. I think it's gone past that point. We do think he's sincere. And I suppose oh. it, instead of getting yourself, in Boris's case, instead of apologising for the last two weeks, it might have been better if he just hadn't made a hash of it a fortnight ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think we're probably cynical about Apollo. I think there probably was a time, maybe 20, 30 years ago, when a, a politician could get some in, attraction and get some impact with an apology. But now everybody apologises for everything. Yeah. Uh, so We went through a spate. It hasn't happened for a while. We went through a spate of prime ministers apologising for things that happened 100 yeah. or 200 exactly. or 300 years exactly. ago. Exactly, yeah. I mean, didn't Blair apologise for the for the Irish the fa- the potato famine, didn't he? Possibly. Gordon yeah. Brown apologised for <laughs> sending people to Australia. Yeah. To Australia. Yeah. yeah, all that was, yeah. Yeah. Because they were nicking food because of the, the famine. Yeah. So they got transported, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. It was a bad, you know, it was, it was, it was bad. But I think people... Uh, I, I think people just discount them now. Mm. Uh, and what about um, having you on, Carol, um, as the deputy property editor? What's Ooh. going on in your patch? Because uh, every time we've spoken before, the housing market seems to bear no relation to uh, reality. Is it still <laughs> booming, um, or is it? Is it? Well, now the economy's picking up. Is it now? Cra- what's going on in property? It started to slow slightly because um, everyone thought the Bank of England was going to raise interest rates. And then they fooled us all by not doing it. But the banks had gone off already and started cutting their deals. So that, that has taken the wind out of the sails a little. Um, but having said that, it's still going you know, fairly strong. It hasn't crashed. And I don't think it is going to crash. If the bank starts putting up the interest rates, we could see it flatline. Uh, and maybe next year dip by a couple of percent, but not, not fall substantially. It's, I mean, I suppose the, in the fact that we've got these figures of uh, inflation up to about 4.2% uh, suggests that probably uh, an interest rate rise is coming. 
I think it will do, yes. If not December, then early next year. It'd be a bit cruel to do it in December, I think, just before <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> and what about the um, what about the, the sort of the changing way we're living? Everyone was going to move to the countryside and do everything from Zoom. Uh, is that still the case? Where are people buying houses? Is it is it big detached houses in the country, or people going back to flats in cities? It's it swung back a bit, and uh, now we're all being called back in the office. Uh, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's been a, a lot of uh, renting apartments in the city centre and uh, those who've got the money left over from their country house sale looking for peer to tears. Um, I think, yes, re- realism has hit home now. We- about, a, about a year ago, Carol sent me to Barnard Castle to, uh, to uh, report on that, on this, on that trend. Mm. Can't remember, I can't think why we picked Barnard Castle. It's a, no, it's no, a mystery. No. Very good opticians. Yeah, they're good opticians. Yeah, yeah. Very good opticians. And, and the, you... the problem there was that they can't build the houses because, they're, because of nimbyism. Yeah. You know, people want to move there. Uh, of course they do. It's lovely, but uh, it's a shortage of supply, yeah. and 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 we and that's why they were trying to change the planning, and that's, that died a death at the Amersham by election, didn't mm. it? Yeah, and so there was a U turn on that. As yeah, well. yeah. There's a massive nimbyism problem. Yeah. Uh, I know that Matt, we talked on this show before about the problems in Devon and Cornwall, where they they are angry that second homeowners are angry that there's not enough homes being built yeah. for local people and then almost every development that tries to get through even though it has high quota of affordable homes everyone says well not in my village you'll spoil yeah. it yeah. So... and so the, the problem perpetuates now robert i need to speak to you because you've been to see uh, a famous property of a different kind i went to pinewood studios yesterday which is uh for, for the first time which is i've been interviewing uh famous people for 30 years i'm surprised by it. uh but uh what really uh amazement well it just I'm sorry, it kind of moved me actually. Was the, the place where I did the interview? I was interviewing a guy who's got a gym there, trains these stars. Uh, was the dressing room for the Carry On films? Amazing, amazing. And I just Is feel it still like got I was touching costumes in there, sort of heavy. Oh, no, there was a, a bar, nurse's that, outfit. And no, a... it's it, it's really quite it's quite poignant because it's sort of semi derelict. Uh, oh wow! And there's not there's an old bar where they used to have a pre pre take drink. <laughs> then there's the dressing room with a sort of kind of Roman theme and various. Sketches on the wall of Hattie Jakes and Sid James. <laughs> no, yeah, and then there's the uh, where the gym is is a boarded over swimming pool where they used to have a swim. Wow! I felt I was really sort of, I was touching British cultural history. Yeah, yeah, Amazing. and I was and the next door was the James Bond soundstage. So I had I had the the, the works. Amazing. That sound, now, Carol, if if Robert Rogers gets hands on that and turn that into a house, that sounds like something that's going to be worth a lot of money. Oh my gosh! Yes, definitely. That would be front cover on the <laughs> <laughs> They're refurbing it. I'm like, maybe. Yeah, it's right in the middle of Pinewood Studios. I don't think it's residential. You don't want the ghost of uh, Sid James going <laughs> <on, laughs> goosing you in the middle of the night. <laughs> no. Oh, I think saucy. I, <laughs> I had. I, I think I've, I've talked about this before, but my um, uh, uh, 18th, 18th birthday was yeah. a Carry On film themed. Fantastic. Fancy dress. Mine was a James Bond. You see, you're obviously cooler than me. There's me dressed up as Kenneth Williams. Yeah, and I was was bad James Bond, I think. I was George Lazenby James Bond. (laughs) Oh, dear. What are you, Carol? Are you you more carry-on or more James Bond? I think I'd like to think I was more James Bond, to be honest. (laughs) I don't want to be Hattie Jakes. No, or Joan Sims. What about Babs Windsor, though? Um, (laughs) Yes, I can pull a pint. (laughs) (laughs) 
Carol Lewis and Robert Crampton there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, here we are again. It's that time of the week. Tim Shipman, the Chief Political Commentator of the Sunday Times, is here. Hello, Tim. Hello. What do you think Keir Starmer might want to ask Boris Johnson about today? I'm going to give you the whole of PMQ's. Keir Starmer's going to say... You caved in on sleaze because of me. And Boris Johnson's going to reply, but my stuff goes further than yours. And Keir Starmer's going to say, but it's very non-specific and the devil's in the detail and you won't tell us the detail. And in half an hour's time... <laughs> we will be proved right. Um, does it matter politically? Um, is, is there, has Boris Johnson taken the sting out of Keir Starmer's attack? Or can Keir Starmer take some credit for bouncing... Boris Johnson into it. He can certainly try to take some credit, um, and he probably is due some credit, but um, it's always slightly less uh, charged when the bloke's already caved in. What Starmer should probably try to do is uh, seek some divisions between Boris Johnson and the people sitting behind him, who are none too happy about uh, Boris Johnson, you know, caving into the left. There was a great quote in one of the papers this morning that said, he's gone from circling the wagons to throwing us to the Indians. Wowzers. Uh, and and actually, it's not just that there's divisions between Boris Johnson and those behind him. There's divisions amongst uh, those behind him too. Exactly. Yes. So the, all the sort of twenty nine intake, twenty nineteen intake, the twenty seventeen intake, the, the the newer MPs, particularly those in the north, for whom an MP's salary of eighty two grand is considered a pretty uh, princely sum. Um, and then a lot of the old guard, the people who tried to get Boris Johnson to back Owen Paterson, to change the rules, to stitch it all up. Some of those, of course, uh, on the list of 30 MPs with uh, uh, lobbying interests uh, outside Parliament. Um, and they are used to topping up their salary. Um, their ministerial days are over for the most part. Um, and there's a real sort of cultural divide in the Conservative Party. So if Starmer's got any sense, he will try and wiggle his fingers in these open sores on the Tory benches. 
And I suppose the other thing is that if you're a new MP in a marginal seat, you probably consider being an MP a full-time job. Whereas if you're an old MP in a safe Tory seat, you probably do have a bit more time around the edges to do some extra work. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, these new MPs uh, show every sign of wanting to represent their constituents rather than climb the greasy pole. Some of them are surprised to be there at all. Uh, a lot of them are earning more money than when they were uh, in jobs before Parliament. Um and they don't buy this argument that 82 grand isn't enough. OK, then, uh, brace yourselves. It's likely to be a lively one, this, I think. Uh, let's kick off, then. It's PMQ's Unpacked. We pause the action live from the House of Commons. This is question number one from Keir Starmer. The leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Yeah! Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Trust matters. And after the last fortnight, the Prime Minister's got a lot of work to do. A central plank in this government's promise to the north of England is a crossrail of the north with at least an entirely new high-speed rail line between Manchester and Leeds. A crossrail for the north, an entirely new line. That is the promise. It's already been made. So I don't want the Prime Minister fobbing off the House about waiting till tomorrow. He can say today, will he stick by that promise Yes or no? Yeah. Minister, uh, he should wait and see what is going to be announced uh, tomorrow, uh, because we will, uh, we will announce, uh, we will produce a fantastic integrated rail plan. I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for them, Mr. Speaker. Why would I? We're going to produce a fantastic. Oh, oh, oh! Don't. I expect the front bench to behave better than what it is doing in the moment. If you don't want to listen to the answer, let me know now. I do, and I cannot hear when you all choke together. That's Lindsay Hoyle we ticking off uh, the Labour front bench. I expect bol better politics from both sides. Let's show a little bit more decorum than we're seeing at the moment. Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, when we produce our integrated rail plan tomorrow, uh, people across the House and across the country will see what we are doing to cut journey times, uh, to make life easier and better for people in the North East, in the North West, in the Midlands, across the whole of the North of the country. Uh, Mr Speaker, we're the biggest programme of investment in rail uh, for a century, Mr Speaker, for a century. And what we are doing, Mr Speaker, is we are giving people in those communities the same access to commuter-type services that people in the southeast of this country have felt entitled to for more than a century. And that is going to be levelling up across the whole of the UK, Mr Speaker. OK, let's jump, uh, jump in there. Uh, Boris Johnson sounding a bit croaky and also slightly wrong-footed that Keir Starmer is asking about... Well, well, nearly as wrong-footed as us, in fact. Shh, shh, we'll take all that <laughs> out of the Drawing end. a discreet veil over that. Uh, yes, so he's a bit croaky. I think he made a comment yesterday about how his uh, boy Wilfred has gone into the... Uh, uh, into nursery, and that does tend to lead to a series of germs taking themselves home. And he's he's got a bit of a uh, he's a bit under the weather, I think. I thought that because so um, uh, Keir Starmer kicked off by saying trust matters, and I suspect what we're going to see is him sort of building an argument on rather than just the Westminster uh, village story about MPs and second jobs. Actually, if you're living in the north, uh, you were told there were going to be some new rail lines. You thought, well, I like the sound of that. I'm going to vote for that, uh, and now you're about to find out you're not going to get it. Yeah, and this is a classic case of government sort of pre-briefing stuff um, and leaks happening and ruining announcements and, uh, you know, what's caught the attention out of this integrated rail plan which is launched tomorrow is that the eastern branch of HS2 is being scrapped um, and it doesn't sound like um, the big east-west 
sort of cross-rail line is, is going to happen in quite the form that they said. Now, if you talk to people in government, they will tell you actually what's going to happen is that the vast majority of people are going to benefit from uh, shorter commuting times. There's a figure that came up in Cabinet last week where um, apparently one th- uh, pretty well two-thirds of people in Europe uh, have a 30-minute commute and it's about one-third of people in the north of England and they want to sort of... Uh, Level that up, to to coin a phrase, but, you know, what are people focused on, including those Red Wall MPs we were talking about on his own benches? It looks like a broken promise, um, and they've not got ahead of it. They've not sort of announced the good news first. Uh, it's the bad news that's dribbling out, um, and, you know, their argument about commuter times and it all being wonderful and 10 billion quid being spent... Uh, is going to have to wait for tomorrow, so he's on the back foot. And presumably the tactic of doing it on a Thursday is you put it beyond PMQs, so you haven't got the details, so uh, you do it at the end of the week and then everyone leaves. The trouble with that is if it leaks to the Sunday papers, you then have this four-day window of nothing. Wait till Thursday. Wait till Thursday. And, uh, yeah, the the scrapping of the HS2, uh, the eastern leg of HS2 between uh, the Midlands and Leeds uh, could make journeys longer by 20 minutes. It's quite a long time if you um, if that's your if that is your commute. Well, let's go back. Boris Johnson really seems to have an answer, except wait for tomorrow. Uh, so let's see uh, what Keir Starmer does with question number two. Keir Starmer. Well, Mr. Speaker, that was a lot of words, uh, but, but it wasn't a yes. So that's one important promise to the North that he won't stand by. Let's look at another. In February this year, the Prime Minister told this House. I can certainly confirm that we are going to develop the eastern leg as well as the whole of HS2, the whole of HS2, a new high-speed line running continuously, no gaps between Birmingham and Leeds. So will the Prime Minister confirm that he stands by that promise? I'm afraid afraid the right honourable gentleman is in danger of getting hoist on his own petard, Uh, Mr Speaker. He needs to wait and see uh, what what we announce tomorrow, because I think he will find that the people of the north-east, of the north-west, the people of Leeds, the people of Nottingham, the people of Sheffield, and the people of the whole of the north-west and the north-east of this country will benefit massively. (laughs) Any other northern towns and cities? I think we'll just carry on, Keir Starmer. Let him ask another go. Speak for a lot of words, but not a yes. So that's two important promises to the North that he won't stand by. No wonder trust in the Prime Minister is at an all-time low. Across the country, and belatedly across this House, there is now agreement that Owen Paterson broke the rules and that the Government should not have tried to let him off the hook. Many members opposite have apologised. The business secretary has apologised for his part. The leader of the House has apologised for his part. But they were following the Prime Minister's lead. So will he do the decent thing and just say sorry for trying to give the green light to corruption? OK, let's just jump in just to give the background to that. Um, uh, the business secretary is Kwasi Kwarteng. Uh, who called for the um, Standards Commissioner, Catherine Stone, to consider her position, something he's now apologised for. Uh, The Leader of the House is Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, on his own podcast, admitted he'd he'd made a bit of a hash of things, uh, and it was probably a mistake to try and overturn uh, Owen Paterson's uh, punishment. um, I I think you are a betting man, uh, Tim. How much would you bet on Boris Johnson now standing up and apologising? I think it's fairly low, um, <laughs> by which you would get decent odds. Um, 
he did an appearance in a sort of what was supposed to be an away day that ended up being in Downing Street last week, and he admitted it was an unforced error in front of his um, uh, ministers, um, which they took to be an admission of guilt. Um, but he didn't quite apologise. I understand he is, um, uh, feels bad about the position he put some of his staff in, um, but he's not someone who makes public apologies very often. Um, it's just not his style. He thinks that if you apologise for anything, uh, you open the door to apologising for everything. And um, he just thinks that's a bad look politically. Well, let's see uh, how he does respond then uh, to Keir Starmer's suggestion that he might like to apologise. This is bigger yet. Well, yes, as I've said before, it certainly was a mistake. Uh, to conflate the case of an, an individual member, no matter how sad, with the point of principle at stake, and we do need, we do need a cross-party approach on an appeals process. We also need, Mr Speaker, a cross-party approach on the way forward, and that's why we've tabled the proposals that we have to take forward the report of the Independent uh, Committee for Standards in Public Life of 2018 uh, with those two key principles uh, that everybody in this House should focus primarily and above all on their job here in this House and secondly that no one should exploit their position in order to advance the commercial interests of anybody else. That's our position Mr Speaker. We want to take forward those reforms. In the meantime perhaps he could clear up from his proposals, uh, from his proposals, whether he would continue to be able to take money as he did from Mishcon Dorea and other legal firms. Oh, let's actually let's hear Lindsay Hoyle. Prime Minister, as you know, and I do remind you, it's Prime Minister's questions, not Leader of the Opposition's questions. Well, there we are. Um, it's notable, Tim Shipman, that the House of Commons Chamber particularly on the Tory side, is not exactly packed to the rafters. Uh, no, and normally this is sort of opportunity to turn up and show your support and uh, make as much noise as possible, and um, it's uh, it's odd, Harry, to say the least. Harry Cole from The Sun, I think, is in the press gallery. He's, he can spot at least 30 empty seats, which actually probably means, by the way... You probably fit 60 people in there, um, by the, the way, way they, they have to squeeze in, in it in PMQs. Yeah. And there's quite a lot of green, which doesn't, it's not a ringing endorsement of the Prime Minister today. No, it certainly isn't. Um, and I can't really ever recall it in non-Covid sort of uh, concerned times ever being anything other than packed to the rafters with people standing in the corridors and, uh, and up by the doors. And this defence of, well, you know, um, Keir Starmer was at it as well, taking money from a legal firm, um, does that really work? I suppose it just, in the end it just makes everyone dislike all politicians. Yeah, I think it works in the, to the degree that um, you look at a lot of polling and I uh, did a focus group last Thursday evening um, and there's certainly a sense, yes, the Tories might be more, worse affected by this, but the, the, but you ask people and, you know, the biggest response is they're both as bad as each other um, and in a sense that's the best sort of hope for the Tories to... Uh, drag Labour into it as well. And there are some questions about uh, what Starmer's been doing. He appeared to be trying to uh, get a, uh, uh, an extra job with a law firm after uh, Labour themselves had said they would ban such things. And, and he's got a load of payments that he's never uh, acknowledged where they came from. And, uh, you know, and we've even seen, you know, Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, last week was defending his position and now he's, I think, said he's going to give up the consultancy work that he was doing. Yeah, I think with him he has always claimed that that money goes into a trust for his disabled son um, to sort of look after him after they've gone. But, yeah, for the public, on the face of it, it's still the same process, isn't it? Yeah, it's still the same. But it goes back to, you know, you can't, as 
Boris Johnson admitted there with the Owen Patterson case, you can't um, make exceptions just because the particular situation is sad. Uh, well, let's go back to the House of Commons as well. Question number four. Piers Starmer. Yeah. That's not an apology. Everybody else, everybody else has apologised for him, but he won't apologise for himself. A coward, not a leader. Weeks, 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 weeks defending corruption. Yesterday, a screeching last-minute U-turn to avoid defeat on Labour's plan to ban MPs from dodgy second contracts. But waving one white flag won't be enough to restore trust. And there are plenty of opposition days to come. And we will not let the Prime Minister water down the proposals or pretend that it's job done. We still haven't shut the door on re the revolving door where ministers are regulating a company one minute and working for them the next. There are plenty of cases that still stain this House. There are two simple steps to sorting it out proper independence and powers for the Business Appointments Committee and banning these job swaps. Will the Prime Minister take those steps? Yeah. Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I've called, as you know, and indeed you have called, uh, Mr Speaker, for a cross-party approach to this. And what I think we need, what I, what I think we need to, to do is to work together on the basis of the independent report uh, by the Committee of Standards in Public Life uh, to take things forward and, and indeed to address the appeals process. But what I think everybody can see, Mr Speaker, is that in a classic, loyally way, uh, the Right Honourable Gentleman is now uh, trying to prosecute others for exactly the course of action that he took himself. And, and what, I think that, what I think the nation wants to know, because his register is incomplete, who paid, who paid Mishkon Derea and who paid the 25000 Who's paying him for his... Prime Minister, I don't want to follow out about it. I've made it very clear. It is Prime Minister's questions. It's not for the opposition to answer your question. Whether we like it or not, those are the rules of the game that we're all into, and we play by the rules, don't we? And we respect this House, so let's respect the House. Here's Tom. Another tip we play by the rules, don't we? The Speaker doing satire now. <laughs> Um, uh, this is um, well. Let's let's start at the beginning there with uh, Keir Starmer, a coward, not a leader. That's clearly the soundbite that he wanted. Which he then followed up with weeks, 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 weeks of not dealing with um, corruption. Which is, I suppose, do you think that was a, was that an accidental or deliberate echo of Tony week, Blair? Week, week, yeah, yeah. Which Blair said about John Major, I think, yeah. didn't he? Um, uh, there's something slightly tinny about Starmer, sort of hurling around insults it doesn't feel natural for him um but you know that's a, it's a line i'm not sure it's a particularly effective line um uh given that he's trying to paint boris johnson as a sort of handmaid of corruption and then he's calling him a coward i mean it's sort of it's, quite. It, it doesn't quite work is that because me, you but, can't say cook in the house of Commons? Uh, that may be the maybe they've been through a whole list of words beginning with c <laughs> coward was the one they thought they could get away with and then johnson hits back with his you know this is a classic loyally response and that obviously comes up in tory you know polling that um starmer's a sort of it's all a bit last summer, summer of last year isn't it it, it does have a slight a uh, yeah um, uh, and actually, crucially, I mean, in 
because he's not allowed to answer the question. In case Thomas, he didn't actually do it, did he? He he was having conversations about taking a job. Yeah, that's right. And he and, and he then ended up not taking the job. There's a dispute over whether he didn't do it because Jeremy Corbyn told him not to, or whether he decided himself not to. Uh, the the one sort of outstanding thing with Starmer is that there's a a decent sum of money that he's claimed. Um, for giving legal advice, and we don't know who he was giving that legal advice to. Um, it wasn't Mishcon Dorea, which is the, the the law firm that Boris Johnson's talking about. Um, uh, the Labour Party say that's for um, reasons of um, uh, client, client confidentiality. confidentiality. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's have another go then. This is uh, Keir Starmer. Question number five on PMQ's Unpack. <laughs> Mr Speaker, that newfound commitment to upholding standards didn't last long. And Mr Speaker, here's the difference. When somebody in my party misbehaves, I kick them out. When somebody... When some... Oh, oh, oh. He's also referring to Jeremy Corbyn there. And now, Dalton, Luke, this is not good. We lost a dear friend... I want to show that this house has learnt from it. I don't want each other to I don't want each other to be shouted down. I want questions to be respected. I expect the public to actually be able to hear the questions and the answers, because I'm struggling in this chair. I need no more. Here, stop. Mr Speaker, when somebody in my party misbehaves, I kick them out. When somebody in his party misbehaves, he tries to get them off the hook. I lead, he covers up. Let's try another issue. We know that Owen Paterson was a paid lobbyist for Randocks. We know that he sat in on a call between Randocks and the minister responsible for handling health contracts. We know that Randocks has been awarded government contracts worth almost £600 million without competition or tender. Against that backdrop, the public are concerned that taxpayers' money may have been influenced by paid lobbying. There's only one way to get to the bottom of this, a full, transparent investigation. If he votes for Labour's motion this afternoon, that investigation can start. Will he vote for it, or will he vote for another cover-up? very happy to publish all the details of the Randolph's contracts, which have been investigated by the National Audit Office already. We're talking of cover-ups. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr Speaker, uh, but we still have not heard why the Honourable General will not tell... Oh, 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 oh. And, and Minister, and about... Prime Minister, sit down. Prime Minister, I'm not going to be challenged. You may be the Prime Minister of this country, but in this House, I'm in charge. And we're going to carry on. End of that. Wowzers. Well, I mean, even John Burko often didn't quite go that far. Um, uh, yeah, I'm the king is quite a... Um... And actually, I think that was interesting because in the previous one, Johnson was trying to ask Starmer questions about it. In that, he was simply making a statement about it. Yeah. And I think there's probably a material difference there. Um he might have got around. He might have got away with it if it was the other way around. If yes, he just if stated he, if he stated it previously, yeah, we he do probably would have got away with it. This, that, and the other. But having been told off once, um, he's now been properly slapped down. You'd have to say Lindsay Hoyle's keeping him in line a little bit better than Keir Starmer today. It yeah. also because at various times the relationship between uh, Lindsay Hoyle and Number Ten has been up and down. 
I think it's fair to say it's, it's not in a good place right now, not least because, you know, um, Lindsay Hodder is particularly furious about this mess over the Standards Commissioner, uh, the Owen Patterson case, the, you know, try to rewrite, essentially the government trying to rewrite the rules of the House of Commons without consulting the House of Commons. Yes. And getting cross-party consensus, that's the sort of thing that gets him very Yeah, close. and he was put in, you know, but with a fair number of Tory votes mm. who didn't like what John Burko got up to during uh, the Brexit battles. And... Um, you know, they will be a little bit dismayed that um, Lindsay Hoyle is showing uh, quite such a, a, a degree of spine. But he's certainly someone who's got views, and he's not frightened to let people know what they are. Um, and on uh, on case summer, if we weren't sure if weeks, weeks, weeks was a deliberate t- uh, Blair echo, we then got I lead my party, he covers up, which was also uh, um, yeah. Blair said I lead my party, he, he follows, follows his. his. So there's a sort of somebody, yeah. somebody's been watching the Blair Brown documentary. I think, I think possibly, they might have been, and it's, it, they've absorbed it uh, slightly. This is like geek jazz, isn't it? You know, political. Stuff. I mean, the interesting thing is, although the Labour Party really cheered when Lindsay Hoyle ticked Boris Johnson off, in terms of uh, Keir Starmer trying to land his key message. Um, He's, he he got interrupted, didn't he? So he, he did, had to sort but of I redo also, it. There was some also some. I felt that when Starmer was landing what he felt were big heavy blows, he wasn't getting that much sort of cheer. But the first, so it. when he did, uh, when somebody in my party misbehaves, I kicked them out. That got a big cheer, and then um, and then Lindsay he didn't Hoyle get to the payoff. Yeah, then Lindsay Hoyle interrupted. So, so for the purposes of his TV clip, he then had to repeat it, and the Labour lot forgot to cheer the second time. Uh, so yeah, there was uh, when I um, when somebody in my uh, party misbehaves, I kick them out. Uh, he tries to uh, get them off the hook. Uh, there was it... one tiny bit of news in there. There wasn't. Uh, that Boris Johnson said he was prepared to publish the details of the of the Randolph deal. Um, so um, they'll now be trying to hold him to that in the yeah. days ahead, I suspect. And well, as we know, Boris Johnson's a man of his words. So that will definitely happen. Let's go back to the House of Commons. Keir Starmer, uh, question number six. Starmer. Mr Speaker, I think the Prime Minister just said he's happy to publish all the Randolph's papers in relation to these contracts, so we'll take that uh, and we'll pursue it. And I remind the Prime Minister, when I was Director of Public Prosecutions, I prosecuted MPs who broke the rule. He has been investigated by every organisation he's ever been elected to. That's the difference. Billions of pounds of taxpayers' money handed to their mates and donors. Tory MPs getting rich by working as lobbyists, one not even bothering to turn up because he's in the Caribbean advising tax havens. And the Prime Minister somehow expects us to believe that he's the man to clean up Westminster. He led his troops through the sewers to cover up corruption, and he can't even say sorry. The truth is that beneath the bluster, he still thinks it's one rule for him and another for his mates. At the same time as his government are engulfed in sleaze, they're rowing back on the promises they made to the North. And it's working people who are paying the price. Is it any wonder that people are beginning to think that the joke isn't funny anymore? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, it it is plain uh, from listening to the the right honourable gentleman that he seeks to criticise this government while refusing uh, to explain his own position. And you've ruled on that, Mr Speaker. You've ruled on that, Mr Speaker. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, But his own misconduct, uh, Mr Speaker, is absolutely absolutely clear and meantime mr speaker we will get on on a cross-party basis we will get on on a cross-party basis with taking forward the business that i've outlined 
and we will get on with the business of this government, which is leading the country out order, of the pandemic. Order, order, order. And, Prime, and Minister, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister, just, I'm suddenly to hear, and if it's correct what I've said, it was about Leader of the Opposition and misconduct. We can't, or cannot accuse somebody of misconduct. Yeah. Now, I may, and I, just before the Leader of the House gives me an answer, all I'm trying to say, I cannot hear. If it was said, I want it withdrawn. If it wasn't, I will accept it. I'm just saying, just a moment. We're now having a row about the Prime Minister. Mr. Yeah. Yeah. Speaker, I refer to the right honourable gentleman's misconduct. Yeah. Because that is what he's guilty of. That is what he's guilty of. Lindsay Hoyle is now taking the advice of the clerks as to whether or not that is in order. I don't think this has done this House any good today. I'll be quite honest, I think it's been... I think it's been ill-tempered. I think it shows the public that this House has not learned from the other week. I need this House to gain respect, but it starts by individuals showing respect to each other. Right, let's go. Blimey. So, I mean, I, the only, I'd say the, the person who's had the best morning is probably Lindsay Hoyle. I think he's probably edged it, hasn't he? Um, I mean, Starmer finished quite well there. There was a, quite a good sort of peroration, wasn't there? Um, and, and saying the joke's not funny anymore is certainly something that comes out in some of the focus groups I've been listening to, that people who hoped Boris Johnson would sort of deliver for them and thinking he still kept up his uh, comedy act. And then, of course bravura of the man to then reply with with a pun which he then had to explain and stick to and it was nearly the subject of a ruling so um yeah um not the most edifying display no uh, i just wonder whether starmer would have been be better carrying on where he started off um and if you're all about winning back these seats in the north i mean just hammer him on you know everything you know and actually there is the, the art of a really successful pmqs actually might have been to have done Trains for question number one, you know, worked your way through a series of broken policy promises, yeah. uh, wind up with sleaze so he can't get to it until later, and then and then sort of uh, hammer him at the end. Um, uh, Ian Dale, no fan uh, of uh, of um, oh no no you know former Conservative candidate. Obviously, he's now I think he's on another radio station. If it's still going, uh, he's just tweeted said I've no hesitation in saying that Boris Johnson's performance in the House today at PMQs was a disgrace. But it wasn't particularly edifying, was it? At a time when. I mean, he doesn't really do sort of statesman-like, rising above it, admitting that things have gone wrong, and he's determined. No, to... his instinct always is to fight and drag the other person into a sort of um, close clinch, and and you know, it's like the boxer who stops the other fellow boxing by just sort of grabbing him by the neck and holding him tight. Um, and you know, it was a it was a fairly unedifying display. Um, you know, Starmer certainly had the better of of the of the big two, um, but I wonder whether Lindsay Hoyle sort of saying we'd play by the rules, don't we, was, uh, you know, mocking Boris Johnson a little bit. It might, yes. The most effective line of the lot. So that was PMQ's Unpacked with Tim Shipman, and we thought we'd just sneak a little extra nugget on the end of the podcast today, just because we had a really nice chat on the uh, radio show today uh, with Keith Scobie-Youngs, the man who's had Big Ben in his shed.
Yeah, it's been a while since we've heard the famous Big Ben chimes as the restoration project continues. Well, the Cumbria Clock Company have been ticking along and restoring the big clock for the last three years. But it's all been happening in secret. We're here to lift the lid on this. It's almost worthy of a Bond film, this. Uh, Keith Scobie-Youngs is the joint founder of the Cumbria Clock Company. Uh, they work on some of the biggest church and public clocks in the UK. They don't get much bigger uh, than the clock uh, from the Elizabeth Tower in Parliament. Uh, hi, Keith. Hi there. So, I mean, this is quite an undertaking, isn't it? For, uh, explain just the significance of the clock, the mechanism, how big a job is it? And then we'll come on to how you've been doing this secretly. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to kind of put into kind of anything. Really. I mean, if you think the Big Ben is the world's most famous public clock. I mean, it was built, it was put into the tower in 1859. It's 11 and a half tonnes of mechanism. I mean, it was a precision instrument. It had to keep within one second of the first blow of the hour, and it had to strike a bell um, in the original specification, which was 15 tonnes. We ended up with a 13 and a half tonne bell. I mean, at that time, nothing like this had been done. And and for me, uh, you know, I've always been a clockmaker. I've always wanted to be a clockmaker from the age of 14. I studied at Birmingham. I ended up in London as a turret clockmaker, and I was fortunate to work with some of those engineers who rebuilt the clock in the 1970s after the big disaster then. And, And even though they used to tell me these stories, I never thought I would end up in a position of doing the biggest renovation conservation project to the world's most famous clock ever. And so to end up doing so, you kind of have to give yourself a pinch. I'm a very lucky man in something I've always wanted to do. I've reached the pinnacle of my career, I suppose you could say. Uh, and how does this compare to, I mean, what's the what's the biggest clock you've worked on before this one? Are we, are we talking sort of normally mantelpiece, grandfather, church? How big <laughs> no, How big do you go normally? Uh, we, 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 we just do, I've always done just church and public clocks since leaving Birmingham Polytechnic, um, uh, 40, 40 years ago. So, I mean, we, we are responsible for some beautiful and massive clocks. You know, we, we do Manchester Town Hall. We're in uh, doing a massive restoration, restoration project there, which we're very proud of. We looked after the clock for 25 years. It's iconic. It's wonderful. We do the Royal Liver Building, which actually have larger dials than Big Ben. They're the biggest dials in the country at 24 feet. And we're proud to look after that for the city of Liverpool. But I think everybody has to agree, Big Ben, from you know sounding out across the world and being on a, a, a source bottle uh, for all these years, uh, you know, just makes it special. And so talk me through the process of then. Presumably there are lots of pieces and they all need to be carefully taken apart. How do you make sure that when you take them all down in London and then take them to your, your secret location... Uh, in the Lake District. I mean, we've all had the, you know, when you pop the back off a watch and everything. Well, I used to work in H. Samuel, and it used to happen to me all the time. Pop the back off a watch, <laughs> springs ping everywhere. And how do you make sure you, you know, you've got that on such a massive scale? How do you make sure that you've got all the pieces, when you take it all apart, you can put it all back together again when you get it back to your workshop? Well, I work with some very experienced people. We were, we were working with the Palace Clock team we, who know the clock well. I also had, uh, you know, an experienced team from the Cumbria Clock Company. So we know our processes. We photograph everything. We take sketches. We take things apart. We put them into bags. We put the bags into boxes and we label the boxes. We label all the parts and and we slowly just kind of take them down. You know, you've got to realise with a clock, especially this clock, you don't want any spare parts. They won't be any (laughs) spare parts. 
project, I can promise you. Um, and so, you know, again, it, it's we're, we're an experienced team. I have some excellent members of staff here who, who know what to do. And in, when we're doing a little parish church, we do the same process. And, and so, you know, we just continued that with the Great Clock of Westminster. And is it very fiddly or are the, because it's such a big clock, does that mean all the pieces are big or are there still somewhere at the heart of it, a tiny little fiddly bit that really needs to be very precise or is, is, think, it, all, it, or is you, it all scaled up? Well, you go from the quarter chime barrel, which is the, I think the largest component in horology in Britain, at least. And that weighs 860 kilos, and, and that's the part which plays the Westminster chimes. Down to the gravity legs on the, you know, Lord Grimthorpe's double three gravity escapement, which made the clock so accurate. It, it was the first clock which used this escapement. And, and you've got a component there which most likely weighs, you know, I don't know, 25 grams, you know, something, something like that, or 250, a small amount in comparison to the barrel. And, and so, you know, you, you have to treat it in the same way you would a watch when you're working at A. Samuels. You know, you've, you've, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take a back off a watch, put it on your kitchen table and decorate your kitchen, would you? And so with a great, with a great clock like this, you had to take it out of the site. And, and it's been a very challenging site for, for everybody involved from the main contractors all the way to the stonemasons. It's a very small footprint. And, you know, it meant, it's meant a lot of teamwork and a lot of effort and, and everybody working together. And the last thing they wanted was 11 and a half tonnes of precision instrument in their tower. <laughs> and it's, like you said, it's a very old clock. Is there a like an instruction manual that when you when you come to do the work, and you think, oh, OK, we'll just open up the instruction manual, it'll tell us everything. Or are you sort of going in blind a bit? Well, it's, it's interesting, really. I mean, the clock was was designed by... Edmund Dennison, um, who became Lord Grimthorpe, and he, he wrote a book called Watch Clocks and Bells. And in there, he discusses his, his clock, the great clock of Westminster. And so we're in a very unique position where we do have the manufacturers in the thoughts on his design process. And in there, on the front piece, was a, a folding uh, drawing of, of the clock mechanism. Now, that was the only drawing we knew of. What was nice is having his thoughts, his descriptions of why he did things which made the project unique we have since with having the clock in the workshops here made a full set of drawings and we will produce a manual for looking after the clock so that for the future generations they will have a bit more of an insight on how the clock <laughs> is dismantled how you look after it and where to lubricate it so you know everybody involved in that will be able to um kind of look after it for future generations which is which is great now we should discuss the fact you've been doing all this in a secret location so you you yes. take it all down out of central london and recreate yeah. sort of uh, clean it all up recreate it put it back together again in your your workshop at the cumbria clock company how and obviously yeah. i mean i don't know I, presumably if somebody stole it it'd be quite a difficult thing to sell you know pop it on ebay i've got the big ben clock mechanism but security is presumably <laughs> a big a big issue and the sort of the the village the village came together to to sort of keep it safe yeah i think what you've got to realize is if people know you've got the world's most famous clock here um then it becomes a target i think it would have been a target if people knew you'd, you'd have the enthusiasts always knocking on your door wanting to have a look at it it'd become a tourist attraction yeah um there would be people who would 
want to steal parts as momentums. There's no doubt about that. But it was it was very important that we we kept it quiet. And really, the village of Dacre, where the workshops are, we're very lucky. It's behind a medieval castle. It's a converted barns, uh, so they just blend into the, the 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 workshop. We took all our signage down, saying the Cumbria Clock Company, and we we let the, the people in the village did know you can't keep a secret <laughs> in the village itself. But we told them we've got to keep this a secret. We don't want people coming here. And it was just brilliant because they became part of the security system. Um, you know, and and it was it was great. It wasn't quite like Dad's Army where we had a, a hay uh, trailer parked in front of the door and rolled it out every day. So about, get around the, the clock, room. around the clock volunteers, yeah. keep, you know, with a with a yes. yeah, with a bayonet. But it, but it was it was it's been brilliant from that point of view, the way that it has been kept a secret. I'm I'm quite amazed that we we haven't had anybody just walking up to the workshop saying, oh, well, I say that very, very, very few people walking up to the workshop and saying, can we, you know, I hear you got Big Ben. We did have somebody, you know, a group of ramblers looking through the window saying, we've been told if we look through this window, we can see the pendulum of Big Ben swinging. And I went to see them. I said, well, no, that's not Big Ben. That's from such and such a church. We do so many. <laughs> do you really think we would have Big Ben here? And off they they went on their ramble again. Wow. Well, if they're listening, they now know the truth of it. They now know the truth of it. <laughs> and so so is it where is it now? It's all back in London. The reason you can talk about it now is because it's all back in London. Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing in Cumbria now. So we've taken it all back to the to the estate. And when and will we, we hear now... it uh, bonging again? Oh, that's that's hard. I mean, we're hoping for spring. It's hard to put a timescale on it because it, it is, even though it's so big, a precision instrument. Now, we transplanted the heart of the UK from London to Cumbria for two years. Now we're, we're putting it back into the body. Um, so, you know, it, we want to make sure we get it right. And I think, you know, if we said spring, I think we'll be about right with that. It's There's a lot of things to 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 sort out. And nearly every component of the clock has been gone through by us and the palace clock team and we're kind of fitting it all back into place and triple checking it and (laughs) and, uh, working with everything i mean and and there is this frightening part that whenever you do a turret clock restoration the only place you can fully test it is when it's in the tower is only when you've got it back there yeah (laughs) yeah and, and the worrying part is that there will be times when it will stop because it's it when when Lord Grimthorpe fitted it in 1859, there were stoppages because it's the only place you can test it. So I'm hoping the general public and everybody around the world will understand that we, we know we there might be the odd stoppage, but we we know we're we're there making it work. It's gonna look spectacular. I mean, and we've become part of the history of that clock. And Cumbria now will be always linked to this 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 worldwide icon just one final thing and actually on the subject of your sort of part in history it seems to be traditional that clockmakers when they work on something might put their signature put their mark somewhere on the clock when when it's all back there in the tower ringing again is is, is it got keith scoby young somewhere on the on the clock I, I, I kind of, you know, clock graffiti is a really interesting thing. You know, we, we find a lot. The, the, I found one of John Vernon, who was one of those clockmakers who I was kind of an improver for when I went to um, London and he told me the stories and he's the one who rebuilt it. I, I, I won't put my name, scratch my name, and I won't be part of the graffiti of the clock. I'm not saying there might not be something attached or hidden that, that, that is saying Keith Scobie Young's. 
uh, or Cumbria Clock Company or the members of the Clock Company Company, but it won't be graffiti on the mechanism itself. It's too important to do that. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon.